Good morning. Merry Christmas. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 42? Our hearts are indeed heavy this morning. And yet, as we turn to God's Word, we can find here great words of comfort on this Christmas Eve morning. Would you stand with me one more time and let's read our text together this morning, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Let's read this together in unison. These are the words of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Father, we need these words this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, and we're thankful for the Son who has risen with healing in His wings. We're thankful for the One who is called Emmanuel, God with us, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, thankful. May we look to Him this morning and find all that we need. We pray in His name, Jesus, who will save His people from their sins. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Christmas is a perfect time to meditate on the prophecies of Christ's coming, particularly His first coming. We often do this Around this time of year, we look back in the Old Testament and see the predictive words of God about the coming of the Messiah. Think about uh, Luke chapter 1 and how Zechariah, in, in announcing his own son's arrival, refers to Christ, the one whom his son would for, uh, be a forerunner to. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved 
from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's referring to his son, John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, <coughs> to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I think of the words later on of Simeon in the temple, Luke 2, 25-35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. And for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. These prophecies, these blessings were certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit for these very texts, but certainly they were also informed by Old Testament prophecies. You hear these men speak out of their knowledge of the Scriptures and out of their anticipation of Yahweh sending the anointed Messiah to deliver His people from their enemies. And some of the most precious prophecies of the Old Testament that have informed the New Testament prophets about the coming and the person of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, are what we call the servants' songs. How many of you have heard of the servants' songs? Would you raise your hand? All right. We've got some introduction to do this morning. The servants' songs, precious prophecies about Christ from the Old Testament. I'd like to meditate with you this morning on the first servant songs. There are four, and they all are in the prophet Isaiah. The first one is this, Isaiah 42, 1-9. The second servant's song is Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. 
wanted to read throughout the, through these this, this coming week. The third servant's song is Isaiah 50, verses, 40 through, or verses 4 through 11. And the last servant's song is one you know well. Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Four servant songs. They begin with something like this. My servant, my servant, Yahweh calls this man his unique servant. And of course, it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a little bit of the historic context of these four songs. As you know, these prophetic songs were inspired by the Holy Spirit through the human instrument of the prophet Isaiah. And God spoke these words to Isaiah and ultimately to Judah, the southern two kingdoms of the divided kingdom. You remember after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided. There were northern ten tribes who had their capital in Samaria. There were the southern two tribes. And Their capital was in Jerusalem, and there was two kings. And so Isaiah was given by God to the southern two tribes to preach his word to them. And Isaiah's prophetic ministry covered the reign of four kings. Uzziah was the first one. You remember Isaiah referring to him in Isaiah 6. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That was the first king during Isaiah's prophetic ministry. So it was Uzziah, then Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. His, his prophetic ministry extended from 739 B.C. to maybe 686 B.C., somewhere in there. Now the first 39 books of Isaiah, you could divide the prophet Isaiah into two books, two, two parts. The first part is verse, the first chapter all the way to chapter 39. And in that part, Isaiah's prophecy were primarily words of judgment. Warnings of judgment. And in that, these first 39 chapters, Isaiah predicted the destruction that would come upon Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Moab and Egypt and Tyre. But also, in these first 39 chapters, Isaiah also predicted Judah's captivity to Babylon. Assyria came and had already wiped out Israel and and exiled them in 739 B.C., but then also, or 722 B.C., but then also Babylon would come in and decimate the city of Jerusalem in 589 B.C., and then Judah would be exiled as well. And Isaiah prophesied that. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are Words of destruction, words of warning, words of judgment. God was calling His people to repentance. (coughs) But the second part of the prophecy of Isaiah is chapters 40 through 66. And that book, maybe unexpectedly, is called often the book of comfort. You remember how Isaiah 40 begins? Comfort, comfort my people and tell her that the measure of her sins has been filled up. She's been disciplined enough. I'm calling her back to myself. It's an amazing chapter. In fact, a few, it was a few Advent seasons ago that we walked through the chapter 
40 of Isaiah together. This prophetic book of comfort is still filled with God's invitation to His people to repent from their sin. You see, it's not just words of judgment that bring about repentance in a sinner's heart. It's also words of mercy, isn't it? That's why Paul writes, I think in the book of Romans, behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. It's the goodness of God that also leads us to repentance. And so we hear words of judgment and we realize our condition as Judah was called to realize. And, and there's an invitation to repent. Isaiah's book of comfort is filled with prophecies concerning God's plans to restore His people. And not just the people of Israel and Judah, but the Gentiles are often referred to in these in this second part of Isaiah as well. Filled with comfort. Filled with words of salvation and blessing and restoration. One commentator said it this way, these last 27 chapters are full of the comfort of God's salvation. They extend not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles who will enjoy His presence and His blessing forever in a recreated heaven and earth. And so in this section of Isaiah, we have the servant songs. The servant songs fit in so well here with the book of comfort. Through this book of comfort, Yahweh reveals His servant, His agent of salvation, who is the hope of the nations, the one who would perfectly and completely accomplish all of His saving plans for His people from eternity. So in this book of comfort, we see Christ. The one who is our hope. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles forever. It is the servant of Yahweh who is the center of the book of comfort. He's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards said this, I think, well, the main business of the prophets was to point out Christ and His redemption. Some of them are very particular and full in their predictions of these things. And above all, the prophet Isaiah, who is therefore deservedly called the evangelical prophet. He seems to teach the glorious doctrines of the Gospel almost as plainly as the apostles did. How plainly and fully does the prophet describe the manner and circumstances, the nature and end of the sufferings and sacrifice of Christ in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy? There is scarce a chapter in the New Testament itself which is more full of it. Jonathan Edwards. I love that quote. It's also very important, I think, before we look at this first servant song to understand not just the historical backdrop a little bit, but the spiritual condition of God's people. What was the spiritual condition of God's people at this time? Why did they need to hear these words? This particular word of comfort, even in Isaiah 42. Why did God inspire warnings of judgment through Isaiah and even words of comfort like this in the second part of Isaiah, we can say their main issue in one word. You know what it was? Idolatry. That was it. 
We could even say that the whole world was engaged in idolatry and through God's servant Isaiah, God was speaking and inviting his people to repent from their idolatry. It wasn't just the Jews, it was the whole world. This is why God gave Israel into the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And why God gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Idolatry. God's people and the Gentile nations were looking to created things. Things they made with their own hands even. Deities they made. They were looking to those things for protection. Other than to Him, they were turning to things in their fears. They were turning to things in their desire to be satisfied and prosperous. They were looking to other human beings, other created things in their desire to have peace and hope. You can see the nature of Israel's idolatry clearly in chapter 40, for example. Would you turn there, Isaiah chapter 40, with me for just a moment? Isaiah chapter 40 is a magnificent chapter to put on display the majesty of God. And in the middle of this display of His majesty, He describes the idolatry of His people. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? God is so kindly in His Word always comparing Himself with created things in the eyes of His people so that He can show them how much greater He is. I mean, God doesn't need to do that, but He does it to draw us to Himself. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. That's God who has measured the Spirit of the Lord. What man shows him his counsel? No one. Whom did he consult? Who does God consult? Who makes God understand anything? No one. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. The nations are like a drop from the bucket. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Craftsman casts it. Goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He was too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Is it not been told to you from the beginning? 
Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's referring to the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is stronger in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's people <coughs> all through redemptive history have had this uncanny ability to go to created things, fellow human beings and earthly things to find their strength and their hope and their satisfaction and their delight. And God says, compare me with those things. Why do you give yourself to all those things? We as 21st century Christians, certainly most of us don't take what little money we have left and go buy a piece of wood and carve it into an image and bow down to it. But certainly we entertain ourselves with idols all the time. Where do we turn in our fears? Where do we turn in our desires to be loved? Where do we turn in our disappointments? Where do we turn in our desires to be satisfied? And, and on and on it goes. How often we turn to created things when God is saying, turn to me. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's the next chapter for us. Isaiah 41, verse 2. It isn't created things that God's people need. They need God himself. They need to set their hope completely on the servant of Yahweh, who is revealed to them in the book of comfort. Only he can truly protect them, bless them, give them peace, satisfy them, meet their true needs, and give them real hope. And the same thing is true for us. That's why. God says here in Isaiah 42, what's the first words? What's the command of this whole section? What does he say? Behold my servant. Your eyes are on so many different idols to try to find comfort and hope and peace and safety and so on. He says, just look at my servant. There you will find all that you need. You know, Christmas is a time of year in which we may be able to catch a better glimpse of some of our own idolatries and more keenly feel the disappointment of the inability of our idols to deliver what they deceitfully promise to us. We may try to reach for an experience of joy in 
the happy feeling of the festivities of the season. I love Christmas time. You come to my house and my sweet wife makes the house look like a store of Christmas ornaments. It's fun. But that must not be our hope, right? We may try to reach for an experience of true joy in the earthly things we hope to be given at Christmas time. You know, we've all known the feeling of coming up to Christmas and the anticipation of what we get is more exciting than after we receive what we were asking for. When we receive it, then we're, it's kind of a letdown, isn't it? The affection we hope to feel from other people at Christmas time. All of us have an expectation of what it should be like when we're gathering together with our families and we hope of what it will be. But it's never quite what we want it to be, is it? All of those things will disappoint. You know, Christmas is also a time of year in which we may be able to feel some of our deepest disappointments and griefs because we're called upon to blend in with all the merriment. And yet, the demand to blend in with all the merriment is met with a great conflict in our hearts because someone with whom we wanted to share the joy isn't present with us. Either by estrangement or even death. Hard to sing the way we want to when someone is not singing here with us today. Some failure with sin has left us feeling deeply guilty and regretful. You want to say, Merry Christmas, and yet your heart's filled with a sense of guilt and regret. Some fear has us struggling to feel free and at peace. You know, Christmas is a very difficult time of year for many, isn't it? Maybe we can understand that a little bit better this year. So what should we do with our broken and sinful human condition at Christmas time? The same thing we should do with it any time of the year. We should turn not to earthly things to find love and joy and peace and security and satisfaction and hope. We must turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Christ is not an idea. Christ is not a religious system. Christ is not just a song that comes and goes. It's not just a movie to watch. It's not just a meal to eat. Christ is a person. Christ is God. Christ is one with whom we have been brought into relationship. And He makes us know the fullness of God because the fullness of God exists in Him. And then we are filled in Him, Paul tells us in Colossians. So that's the main idea of this servant song is look to Christ. In all of your needs, look to Christ. Indeed, that's what we're called to do in the very first verse. Behold my servant. Two points we'll run through here. That was my introduction, set the stage for this text. But the, we'll run through the text fairly quickly, I think. Number one, why, so, so why should we look to Christ? It's almost as if, 
and I say this respectfully, Yahweh is coming to His people in this text and saying, I recommend My servant to you. Here's why. He is glorious. There's no other better person. And that's the thing. He's not just recommending Him as one among many. He's recommending Him. He's the only one who is our Savior. So number one, look to Jesus because number one, the description of the servant. Number one, the description of the servant. How do we... How does Yahweh, this is God the Father as it were speaking to us. (coughs) And he's describing his servant. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold. This is verses 1 through 4 is the description of the servant. My chosen whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I have ten descriptions. Let me give them all to you up front, okay? From these four verses. He's a servant. He is upheld. He is chosen. He is a delight. He's empowered. He's commissioned. He's humble. He's gentle. He's determined. And he's desired. Ten reasons why we should look to Christ. He's a servant. This this first word we see here of of Christ describes our perfect Savior because His will was to do the will of Him who sent Him. That makes a good servant. A servant is one whose will is completely given over to the will of his master. And that makes a good savior for us because there are so many that promise to be a savior to us in the world and yet they don't follow through because they have turned everything to become something to fulfill their own personal agenda. But not Jesus. He said over and over in the Gospel of John, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me and to complete His work. And what was the work? His will was to save those who have been given to Christ and to raise them up on the last day. Jesus is a perfect Savior because His will was completely captive to the Father's will to to bring glory to the Father and save His people from their sins. He's a servant. Second, He's upheld. Whom I uphold... Jesus is not a Savior who will fail because it is Yahweh Himself that will sustain this servant. He will be enabled by God Himself to accomplish all the Father's will. Third, He's chosen. He's not self-appointed. Jesus is not a self-appointed, self-assertive Savior. He's the very one whom God the Father chose. I think of 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where we see Peter revealing that God had chosen Jesus from eternity and then made him manifest in recent days, in, in the days of the New Testament, for our sake, so that our hope would rest not in ourselves, but in God. God had chosen from eternity. 
This has always been the plan. The Father chose the Son to be the Savior of the world. He's a servant. He's upheld. He's chosen. Notice it says there, He in whom my soul delights. God the Father isn't settling for anyone second rate here. This is, this is the Son who's the servant of Yahweh, the Savior of the world, who brings God the greatest delight. There's three times where God personally announced from heaven his affirmation of the Son, the servant of Yahweh. What was the first time? His baptism. Remember that? This is my beloved Son in whom, what? I am well pleased. That's our Savior. The one who lived a perfect life and, and, and perfectly, gloriously sacrificed himself in, in offering to Yahweh, in saving his people from their sins. This is one who the holy God of heaven and earth takes great delight in his perfect holiness. <coughs> he said it also, not only at the baptism, but at the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John going up in the Mount of Transfiguration saw Jesus. And this was his beloved son. Listen to him. And then finally, right before Jesus' death, you remember in John chapter 12, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified your name and will glorify it again. Right? The Father bringing glory to the Son. The Father delights in this servant. He's a servant. He's upheld. He's chosen. He's delighted in He's empowered. God the Father says, I put my spirit upon him. You realize that Jesus, the God-man, is a real man, and he walked about as our Savior on the earth, filled with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3 talks about that. He has the Spirit and gives the Spirit without measure. That's why Jesus lived a sinless life. Because every moment of every day of his life, he rested upon the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Spirit that led him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Spirit that sustained him through the Word of God to endure that temptation so that he could fulfill righteousness and be our substitute, a righteous Savior before God. <coughs> it was the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus in his teaching to reveal the truth of the Gospel to the world. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do the miracles that proved he was the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, that proved his sonship through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was the Holy Spirit through whom he offered up his soul as a perfect sacrifice to God on the cross, Hebrews tells us. He's empowered to complete everything that is necessary for our salvation, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's a servant. He's upheld. He's chosen. He's a delight to God. He's empowered. He's commissioned. Did you see here in this text what the mission of the servant is? It says it four times. This is the, this is the, the thing that's repeated again and again here. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will establish justice in the earth. And then again, there's one more time I'm not seeing at the moment.
Anyway, it's there somewhere. He will bring forth justice. What does that mean? What does that mean? Think of it this way. He will set all things right for the glory of God. He will set all things right for the glory of God. What happened in the fall? God's name was dishonored. God's honored honor was devalued. Man turned against the holy, glorious Creator God and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. God's holiness and justice and righteousness and value and glory was diminished in the heart of man, as it were. God deserves justice, does He not? What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin is is death. God created us as human beings and bestowed great glory and honor upon us as, as Psalm 8 says and gave us this glorious world through which to meet our needs and to so that we would act as His representatives and extend His reign and declare His righteousness in the world. And we said, I don't want anything to do with you, God. I want to be God. I'll take all that you've made and satisfy myself with it. Right? The essence of idolatry again. And God told us from the beginning, you turn away from me and you serve and worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's death for you. It's death. The wages of sin is death. So God deserves to be vindicated. His holiness deserves to be vindicated. How, is, how did Christ do that? How is He going to do that? On the cross, right? On the cross. Jesus took upon Himself on the cross the sin of all that would ever trust and believe in Him. And all of God's wrath against that sin would be poured out upon the person of Christ on the cross. And so that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that the righteousness of God is now revealed through Christ on the cross. His righteousness is vindicated. He can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. He is shown to be just because this holy creator God who is also judge is punishing sin. He can't overlook that punishment, right? He wouldn't be holy and righteous and good then. He'd be perverse and You could pay him off as a judge. But he will vindicate his holiness on the cross. And at the same time, he can justify and forgive all who trust in Christ. But will God's justice be brought to vindication for those who reject Christ? Yes. Because Christ will become their judge. And he will sentence them to God's perfect, holy outpouring of wrath for eternity. Christ will bring that about. So Christ's mission is to bring forth justice to the nations. Every knee will bow to Him. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. He will bring glory to the Father. He will forgive those who trust in Him. He will vindicate the righteousness of God. Now it's interesting, as, as, as the writer describes how that will come about, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He is also humble. You ever notice that Jesus didn't attract attention to himself throughout his ministry? You ever wonder why he said, hey, I just healed you, but don't tell anybody. How many times do you count that he says that throughout the gospel narratives? Why? It wasn't up to him to bring glory to himself, and he knew that. Who would bring glory to Jesus the Son? The Father. And he waited for the Father to glorify him. Jesus was so humble. Remember in 
in John chapter 7 where Jesus' own brother said to him, why did you go and out in the public square and start doing miracles and show everybody who you are and what you can do? He goes, that's man's mind. I'm on God's mission. Jesus was not a self-promoting Messiah. He was a God-glorifying Messiah. And you know what? I love that. Because anyone who's out to promote themselves doesn't help other people. But that's not Christ. Christ was there to promote the Father and to do His will for the good of all who would trust in Him, for the salvation of God's people. Jesus is trustworthy. He's a trustworthy Messiah. Remember what He said in John chapter 10. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. We know He's good. He's self-sacrificing. He's not self-promoting. He trusts the, the Father to glorify Him at the right time. Verse 3, a bruised reed He will not break. A faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Our Messiah is also gentle, isn't He? That's glorious. He doesn't look at those who would have salvation and say, alright, get it together. You're struggling? Let me put my heel on your head. That's not Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus bore our sin burden. Jesus bore the weight of, of the law in our place. And He gives us His righteousness. He gives us His salvation and then enables us to learn from Him and grow. Isn't that a picturesque phrase? Those two. He, a bruised reed He will not break. What is, more, what is more tender than a, than a bruised reed? I mean, a wind blows on, just fall over. Right? Jesus, Jesus cares for His ones who struggle. Jesus cares for His ones who long to, to overcome and to grow in Christ-likeness and to follow Him who care for them. He performs the work of salvation for them, in them, through them. A faintly burning wick He will not quench. Boy, just a candle that's barely barely alive. There's just a little ember glowing at the end of the wick. And Jesus doesn't come up to that one who's struggling, who's seeking to follow him by faith and say, oh, you're not doing so good, are you? I don't need you. He doesn't need us, but he's gentle, careful. He brings us to life spiritually and sustains us and enables us to grow. What a glorious Messiah we have. This is the servant of Yahweh. He's a servant. He's upheld. He's chosen. God delights in him. He's empowered. He's commissioned. He's humble. He's gentle. But he is determined. Nothing will stop his mission, will it? You trust in Jesus, he will save you. He will overcome all the obstacles in the pursuit of your salvation. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He realized God's plan of salvation through Christ is not contingent upon anything. Do you realize that? While we've seen so many human efforts at creating a certain governmental dynamic fail, it's never, I mean, all the promises that come and go from, from different presidents or different kings around the world, it's like, well, that didn't turn out the way he said it would. Not with Jesus. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged until he has accomplished the Father's mission for him. And I love that last phrase, the coastlands wait for his law. 
those upon whose hearts he has touched and brought about his grace all over the world are calling and longing for the saving work of Christ. How often do we hear stories about about tribes of people around the world who look at the heavens and say, God, if you're real, if you're there, please reveal your gospel to me. I want, we want to know you, who you are. And God brings about the word of Christ and, and brings someone to translate the scriptures for them and bring them the gospel. One day, the whole world will be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And that will be through the work of the Messiah. Number one, the description of the servant. Number two, the decree concerning the servant. Now the, the, there's a shift in, in the text that now God himself is speaking about the Messiah in a little bit different way. Is speaking to the Messiah here. Thus says God the Lord, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. See, he's talking to the servant. God the Father talking to the Son. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things that have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. First thing I want you to see here is simply God's own credentials through which He decrees things about the servant. God, Yahweh, this is the very name of God. You'll find the name, the proper name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh in the original, all throughout these servant songs. In fact, I think it's the only name of God that you'll see. Yahweh. And who is He? He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He spread out the earth. He gives breath to people. He gives His own life to those who live. And it's this one who says, I am Yahweh. This is, this is my plan. Servant, His own Son, there as Savior, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. See, He's called by God. He's kept by God. I will keep you. Nothing's going to, to thwart this saving mission. I've called you. And you know what? He's our gift. Talk about a Christmas gift. It's Jesus. I will give you. I love that phrase. I will give you. Who is our gift? It's Jesus, the servant. And He is to us, as a gift, a covenant for us. You see, we're covenant breakers. God gave us His law. He told us His Ten Commandments and He said the soul that, that sins will die. He says if you keep these laws, you'll have eternal life. And we're all covenant breakers, aren't we? So what we need is the servant who brought in the new covenant. The one who kept the law for us in our place. The one who took upon Himself the punishments of covenant breaking and absorbed all of the wrath of God in our place so that we could be reconciled to God and brought into covenant with God. And then with that new covenant, He puts His Spirit within us so that we can say like David, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. The law written on our hearts. The law of God is no longer a burden to us. It's our delight. 
He is given to us as a covenant. He's given to us as what? A light. Jesus is the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. He speaks God's truth to us so that blindness can see. So that people who are enslaved to sin can be freed. Those who sit in the darkness of sin and death and the judgment of sin can be released. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth. And what? The truth will make you free. You want to be free from sin? You don't need anyone but Christ. You need His truth. You need His truth deeply applied to your heart in whatever area it is that you struggle. See, this is who we need. We need Christ. He is our covenant keeper. He's our covenant maker with God. He is kept by God. He's called by God. He's the light that we need to be free from sin. And notice, He is singled out by God. Because what God says here is that there is no other Savior other than He and the One whom He has provided. Notice how He says that. I am Yahweh. That's My name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In other words, God is saying, guess what? There is nothing else that I will, I will share my saving work with. No one else, nothing else. I will not share my glory in the salvation of my people with anyone. My agent of salvation is the servant. And if you try to depend on something else, it's going to go badly for you. Because there is salvation found in no one else. There is, like Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name that saves. That's the name of Yahweh. And there is only one who will be glorified in salvation. That is Yahweh through Jesus Christ. And so there's nothing else that we can manufacture to, to aid God in our salvation. Only Christ. Only His servant. See, there are so many things that people try to do to save themselves. They try to add to Christ and try to be good enough. They try to go through religious rituals. They try to, to be uh, attentive to some religious organization. There is no other salvation than what is found in Christ. God will not share His glory in salvation with anyone. So we're called to repent of any idol that we set up for ourselves in the pursuit of salvation self-righteousness, another person, a church, whatever it may be, another God, another religion, it's Christ alone. And finally, this has all been declared by God. I love how God declares things before they happen. God has a habit of doing that. There is power to convince the heart in prophecy. Because if you hear God say, this is what I've done before, and it came to pass, okay, we saw that. There, there's things in the past that God has declared and have now come to pass. Now there's some new things I'm going to do. Well, in Isaiah, the coming of the God-man was a new thing. And when, they, when you see them, you'll know that it's my work. So I'll tell you before they happen so that you will trust in my word. This all comes to the conclusion, as we say, look to Christ. There's so we could go so much more deeply through these descriptions, and I hope you will you will spend some time meditating on the servant of Yahweh in this text and the other three servant songs. But dear ones, listen, 
this Christmas season, when you are tempted to seek your joy in something or someone else, look to Christ. Behold the servant of Yahweh. When you're tempted to despair for the disappointments that this earthly life brings, look to Christ. Let's look to Christ in our grief together this Christmas Eve. We have Jesus. And our dear brother Mike has Jesus and is seeing Him face to face. When you are discouraged at your own sinfulness and the disappointments of family or whatever else, you that may touch your heart this Christmas season, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Behold my servant, God says to us. And in Him, you will find all that you need. And this morning, if you are still without Christ, I would urge you, as I have throughout this, this message, abandon every other pursuit of salvation than the person and work of Jesus Christ. God will not share his glory with anyone in your salvation. It is Christ alone who saves. He was born as a God-man. He lived a perfect righteous life to meet God's covenant requirements in your place. And he died to bear your consequences for covenant violations so that you could be free from the punishment of sin. He rose to give you new life in spirit and forever. And God promises you that if you will trust in Him, look to Christ in faith and turn from anything else to save you. You look to Christ. You're willing to turn from your sin and follow Him. He will save. He will not cast you out. He will save you. He will keep you. And He will usher you into eternal life someday when this life for you is over. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we are grateful for the servant of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus so the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Even in our sorrow, even in our sadness, we have the joy of Jesus. We're thankful for that. We pray in his name. Amen.